Okay, so good day. Our topic today is music. That's right, like because my brother and I are now experts in the field. Yeah, eh? right. Because you ready for today's episode on Dave Thomas hosers? Mike, that's the wrong Dave Thomas. That's the one from SCTV. Today we're talking about. Oh, you must mean this Dave Thomas. From the day I opened the first Wendy's. My goal has been to serve the best hamburger in the business. A customer orders a single with cheese. Is the way you do it if you want to please. Sir, this is Discord and Rhyme. <laughs> A podcast where we discuss our favorite albums, song by song, broken bottle by broken bottle. Roll call, Mike DeFabio. Dan Watkins. Rich Bennell. Our host this week is Dan, who is sitting in a chair and wearing a beat-up fedora. What album do you have for us, Dan, and why did you pick it? I have Per Ubu's 1978 debut, The Modern Dance. The Modern Dance? Hey, that's why I picked it. <laughs> uh, uh, ah, got it. Um, I, I've covered a few punk and punk adjacent albums for the podcast, and some of my favorite albums sort of sit in that fuzzy zone of not quite punk. I've found that I'm much more of a fan of punk as a sensibility than I am of the more kind of codified punk as a genre. And I think early Pear Ubu is a great example of the farthest edges of the 70s punk umbrella. This album really finds that perfect blend of punk energy with a more experimental artistic spirit. Something that, quite frankly, Pear Ubu never pulled off again. And to be honest, David Thomas would probably punch me for even referring to them in punk in the same breath. So, <laughs> you know. And while, while I like my share of kind of out there albums... They're often not the sort of thing I really listen to every day. Uh, it's more of a special occasion. But The Modern Dance is an album I actually listen to quite a bit. Uh, just when I want something with some energy to listen to that's got a little bit of bite to it. It's a really satisfying listen. You know, I've, I've jogged this album several times. <laughs> I did too, about a month ago. It was a strange experience. <laughs> Especially when we get when we get to one particular track. You'll know the one. Oh yes. <laughs> oh yes. It's like it's like jogging through the landscape of a racer head. It's <laughs> <laughs> well put. <laughs> Once I listened to Tangerine Dreams Zeit on the elliptical, which was like climbing up like a staircase into a like a large gray infinite cloud of nothing. That's that's like that's the exercises they do in uh, 2001 or something. <laughs> just keep making movie references. Anyway, Perubu. Perubu. Dan, what is your personal history with Per Ubu? I actually can't remember where exactly I first heard about Per Ubu. Uh, I might have stumbled on them while just browsing through the All Music Guide online years ago and just thought they sounded interesting. And it, it took some searching, but I eventually got my hands on a copy of The Modern Dance, and it hooked me away from the first listen. It had sort of this Captain Beefheart meets punk aesthetic that was perfectly geared to my taste at the time. It was kind of like finding a missing link that I didn't know I was looking for. Now, 
I'll give an early disclaimer here that my interest in the band is heavily weighted toward the early years. You know, like I mentioned a second ago, uh, the modern dance is sort of this Goldilocks moment for me where their artsy weirdness is crossed with just enough punk DNA to create this perfect balance. After this record, the band started to kind of peel away more and more of the familiar, you know, song structures of rock music, let alone punk music. And things got a lot more abstract and kind of impenetrable, even for me. You know, while I respect this in theory, I've had a hard time making the leap from finding these albums interesting to something I would actually want to listen to. But I do own a bunch of these records, so I'm happily waiting the day for them to actually click with me. All right, Rich, what about you and Perubu? Well, this one's going to be easy. I have basically no history with Perubu. I'm pretty sure I first learned about them from, you know, our much mentioned musical mentor, Mark Prindle, the clown prince of 90s <laughs> online record reviewers. But I bought this album back in college because a lot of people in our general orbit loved it. But there's only, you know, there's only so much time in the world. And I just never listened to it much because, you know, apparently it was much more important that I listened to the polyphonic spree. (laughs) Well, they had more band members. A lot more. Yeah. More band members equals better than. Yeah, it's true. But anyway, this is the first sustained attention I've given to this album. And surprise, I like it a lot. Hey. All right. All right. (laughs) Spoiler. As as for me, I got into Perubu as with so many things in high school when my musical exploration just exploded. Uh, I learned about them, I believe, uh, through uh, the Music Hound Guide to Rock, which I had a copy of. Music Hound? <laughs> yeah. I Music Hound. I think I had that one, too, but uh, the, the one I really wore out was my print copy of the All Music Guide. No, it's funny. I, I very well remember the Video Hound, but I forgot there was a Music yeah. Hound as its sibling. Oh, you know what? That's the one I had, the Movie Hound yeah. or the Video Hound. Yeah. How many how many bones did this uh, album get? <laughs> it got like a four and a half or, or a five bones. It didn't get a wolf? No, the Music Hound loved Perubu. And they were one of the bands, you know, that I learned about a lot of cool, interesting bands I'd never heard of, like, like Tortoise. And also uh, bands that I learned I had no interest in listening to, like Seven Dust. <laughs> but uh, Perubu were a band that they were... I mean, not only did they sound interesting, but they were just raving about it. And it was right around the time when I was really getting into the fall. And they seemed to have a similar sort of thing where it was like halfway between art rock and punk, which usually, you know, those two things were generally talked about as being diametrically opposed. But I liked the the concept. I saw the phrase art damaged punk yeah. thrown around a lot. And I liked the idea of like punks discovering art and being corrupted by it. Like, oh, art. <laughs> but at the time that copy of uh, Music Hound was written, their albums were out of print or at least you know, the real important early ones. So they were sort of bemoaning the fact that you couldn't find them. But they had gotten reissued, unbeknownst to me, in between that being published and when I read it. So I think I was talking to somebody at school about Captain Beefheart, as one does. And she was like, have you ever heard Perubu? And I was like, oh, well, I'd read about them, but uh, their albums are all out of print. Well, it turned out she had a bunch of their albums. So I borrowed the, the two that I'd read about the most, which were The Modern Dance and Dub Housing. Those were the ones I really wanted to hear. The Modern Dance clicked with me right away. I thought it was just fantastic. It was 
everything I was expecting, everything I wanted that sort of music to be. Dub housing sort of made me scratch my head a little bit. It's a lot more unmoored. Yeah. yeah. And Perubu got increasingly <laughs> unmoored. They, they got yeah. a lot less, a <laughs> lot less punk and a lot more art. And I'm still uh, making my way through a lot of those other albums. I appreciate them more now. Like stuff like Song of the Bailing Man and New Picnic Time. They're, they're starting to make more sense to me. Yeah, well, you mentioned Beefheart and listening to these albums. Like I, I've gotten the same sense that I did, like listening to Trap Mask Replica a bunch of times, which is like the more you listen to it, the more the songs start to feel like songs yeah. as you like yeah. start to be able to anticipate the little changes. So the early Parrot stuff has in general grown on me a lot over the course of the last two or three weeks. Yeah, you sort of brute force them into being catchy. All right. So, Dan. How about you give us an overview of Perubu and what is their deal? begins in Cleveland, Ohio in the early 70s. David Thomas was a, an entertainment writer for a city paper called The Scene in which he wrote under the alias Crocus Behemoth, which is incredible, <laughs> incredible name. Yes. He and a fellow colleague, Kim Zonville, formed the band Rocket from the Tombs, where they played local clubs with an act that mostly consisted of jokey Zappa-influenced song parodies. Local musician Peter Lochner was an early fan and joined as guitarist. He convinced Thomas to take the band into a more serious direction, which kind of led them into more of a garage proto-punk sound. 
And it led to the formation of what would become the classic lineup of the band, which consisted of Gene O'Connor, a.k.a. Cheetah Chrome on guitar, Craig Bell on bass, and Johnny Medansky, a.k.a. Johnny Blitz on drums. <laughs> While Rocket from the Tombs would eventually go down as legendary proto-punk pioneers, their actual lifespan as a band barely lasted a year before creative differences drove them apart in the summer of 1975. The band never made any studio recordings, leaving behind only rough live cuts and demos that would later circulate as bootlegs. of the breakup, the members split into two distinctly different bands. Cheetah Chrome and Johnny Blitz moved to New York and embraced the straight-ahead punk sound as the Dead Boys. Meanwhile, David Thomas and Peter Lochner remained in Cleveland to form the decidedly more experimental Per Ubu, adding guitarist Tom Herman, bass guitarist Tim Wright, drummer Scott Krause, and synthesist Alan Ravenstein. The band recorded a series of singles and released them on their own Hiropin label. These included a handful of songs drawn from the Rocket from the Tombs repertoire, including 30 Seconds of Tokyo and Final Solution. Unfortunately, Peter Lochner's struggle with drugs and alcohol led to his exit from the band, dying the next year from acute pancreatitis at the age of 24. Around this time, Tom Wright left the band to be replaced by Tony Mamoni on bass. On the strength of the singles, the band was offered a deal with Mercury Records under the subsidiary Blank Records to release their debut LP, The Modern Dance. At this time, David Thomas felt that the Cleveland music scene was dying out. And he figured that they would just put out the record as kind of a final document of their work before just going off and getting regular jobs and being regular schlubs. Now, while the album wasn't a major seller at the time, it did well enough to eventually get them another deal with Chrysalis Records for the follow up. And they have been going for 40 odd years since then. So they didn't have to get regular jobs. Nice and short and sweet. I, I like when I like these like, you know, punk and post-punk and proto-punk band histories. They're so much shorter than like Yes and Genesis and whatnot. Well, <laughs> there, there were like about a, a dozen band members in Rocket from the Tombs that I uh, glossed over. <laughs> oh, well, I want to hear the full history of every single one of them. <laughs> All right. So before we get started on the modern dance, we'd like to say thanks to our amazing donors on Patreon. As David Thomas would say, you guys are the Merdra Merdra. <laughs> we love making this podcast, but it's a lot of work, and the support of our subscribers helps compensate us for the time we spend making this show as good as it can be. If you'd like to sign up for a monthly donation, visit patreon.com slash discordpod. 
and you'll get perks like a stylish Discord and Rhyme sticker and access to more than 30 exclusive bonus episodes. Also, it's that time of year again. Question time! We're going to be recording our annual Q&A episode in April, so if you have any burning questions about the show, our record collections, or pretty much anything you want to know within the bounds of good taste, email us at discordpod at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at discordpod by the end of March. Don't be afraid to be creative. And with that, our sentimental journey begins. Track one is Non-Alignment Pact. How many dogs are turning their heads sideways right now? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for leaving this part in. (laughs) It's important. more a welcoming way to begin your debut album than with 20 seconds of high-pitched piercing noise. (laughs) Daring your listeners to check out the second the needle hits the record is a bold move. But if you're patient enough to rough it out, Tom Herman cuts through the noise with a rusty Chuck Berry riff, leading the band into one oddly catchy tune. While this may seem like the most obnoxious way possible to start an album, in a way it's kind of the most appropriate introduction to the band. Most of the songs in this album are fun and creative, but sometimes you have to fight against the tide a bit to get into them. And I just love the way the song starts giving the image of the band members picking up their instruments one by one to play a song right after a nuclear fallout has occurred. (laughs) That is the first thing that I would do in that situation, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'd have to learn how to play an instrument first, but, you know, I'll, I'll get on that. If you're completely new to the band, your first question might be, Why does the band's lead singer sound like a cartoon character? David Thomas's voice is something you might call an acquired taste. You'll either find it amusingly quirky or a complete deal breaker. The best description I've come across for his voice is from Emerson Dameron, who described it as James Stewart trapped in an oboe. (laughs) (laughs) Which is pretty good. Oh, get me out of this oboe! (laughs) While he would certainly contort his voice in ways that are A bit much for me on later albums. I think his vocal quirks on this record actually give these songs the right amount, the right color. Uh, I honestly can't imagine any other voice singing these songs. Getting back to the song itself, it really lays out everything that I like about the band. It's odd, a little ugly, but it also rocks. This lineup of the band could really bring a satisfying primal punch to balance out the more artsy leanings. I think the real secret weapon here is Tony Mamoni's bass playing. 
he always seems to be adding a neat little twist to each verse. And the section where he takes the lead in the instrumental uh, bridge is one of my favorite moments in the album. Rich, what do you think of Non-Alignment Pact? Well, first, in regard to the lyrics, uh, so y- you can rarely actually, like, map David Thomas's lyrics onto, like, a coherent, like, narrative or theme or anything, <laughs> but I've heard this one described as, like, a breakup song, and Non-Alignment Pact is a great, like, metaphor <laughs> for a kiss-off or a breakup. Is there a colder way to tell somebody I'm breaking up with you than making <laughs> them sign a Non-Alignment Pact? <laughs> yeah, seriously. And I could, you could also think of it as, like, you know, Discord and Rhyme's favorite thing, a statement of purpose, not only for the album, but for their entire career. They are not yeah. aligned with anything that, you, that you've heard before. Yeah, but I, I want to use this song as a jumping off point to talk about just Per Ubu's whole style, which uh, which David Thomas has referred to as avant garage. Because if you read almost any interview with him, especially in the early days, he'll talk about how he considers Per Ubu to be, quote unquote, mainstream pop music. And that artists <laughs> like, you know, Britney Spears, Lady Gaga and Justin Timberlake to him are experimental music. <laughs> and if, if you go to the official Per Ubu website, it has a chart called Schrodinger's Chart of Pop Music that shows how pop diverged from this, uh, what he calls the historical imperative sometime in the early 70s. And it's increasingly failed to capture the human condition, yada, yada, yada. Pretty much everything David Thomas says is is like that he's uh, he does a lot of like the wanky critical thinking for his fans and i never know how serious he's being by the way i i don't know he's very consistent about it though you never get you never really get the feeling that he's bsing like it's it's all like part of like yeah a very like coherent narrative in his brain but either way it all feels very tongue-in-cheek but you also like you also get the sense that thomas like really buys into it and i I can especially hear it on tracks like this one which feel rooted in you know just like good old-fashioned rock and roll like i mean this is a pretty standard rock song like rock songs don't normally have yeah jimmy stewart trapped inside an oboe singing but you know it's got verses it's got a chorus it it, it sounds kind of like i don't know like uh uh, proto-punk stuff like the Stooges like uh, th- this is a recognizable like form of music that I've heard before and yeah. uh, I- I'm actually going to do a bit of compare and contrast here because actually the opening to this song reminds me a lot of the beginning of going for the one by yes <laughs> oh <laughs> which came out the previous year it totally does And I love that song, but as with all things, yes, I don't know. There's a certain like condescension to it. Like, you know, here's your simplistic boogie woogie music. And now we're going to progress it into something, into something better and greater. Whereas on non-alignment <laughs> pact, it really feels like Per Ubu is like working within the contours of the music and like doing really, really interesting things with it. So yeah, I mean, great, great opener. Even when I didn't really know much about the modern dance, I always liked this one. Well, David Thomas, he, he's a big nuggets guy too. So he's sincere. Mm-hmm really loves stuff like you know the the seeds and things like that so I yeah I, i've definitely heard that like pushing too hard by the seeds is like one of those well, well i guess seeds uh you know yeah. uh, to, <laughs> of the entire sound for him you're pushing too hard for pushing on me you're pushing too hard on what you want me to be you're pushing too hard about the things you say you're pushing too hard 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This is one of my favorite punk songs, full stop. Hell yeah, it does. That probably says <laughs> as much about me as it does about the song, uh, because it's, yeah, it's a punk song for sure, but it's completely unapologetically weird. I mean, yeah. it doesn't, that's not just a blast of feedback at the beginning. That's a, a blast of high-pitched synthesized noise. Like we're we're already getting into art territory before the song even really starts. I like that description of the band starting to play after a, a nuclear fallout. It's it's like the, the beginning of the song is some kind of end of the world alarm. And yeah. Perubu takes that as a signal that now they can begin. <laughs> and David Thomas, I mean, Jimmy Stewart trapped in an oboe is a pretty good description. I've always described him as sounding like a big penguin. Yes. I always had that image too. <laughs> it's it's yeah, it's it's a punk band with a big penguin as a lead singer. Introducing Chili Willy. <laughs> You're right. Who else would be singing this song? Just anybody else. You know, the guy from the Dead Boys, it just wouldn't work. And we're gonna get more into this later, but Alan Ravenstein's uh synth playing it's really inspiring to me as a non-musician to hear somebody playing such a dominant role in a band without doing anything remotely musical. Like he's not playing notes or rhythms or anything. The the main synth sound in this song sounds like a big pteranodon swooping down. <laughs> yeah, he, he definitely seems to have, know his way around an arrangement, though. It's a, it's an interesting oh, yeah. like, facet yeah. of what he does. Yeah, no, what everything he's doing is really smart. It's not just like random squiggly do, but uh, he's he's making a, an important contribution to the band without without worrying about playing the right notes. He's worried about you know the right synthesizer patches coming in at the right time. Yeah, and I'm gonna echo everything he said about uh, Tony Momoni's bass. I love how dominant it is. It's he's just he sounds like he's just doing whatever he wants throughout the course of the song. And it just happens to match up. It reminds me of uh, some of the stuff Holger Shukai would do in can. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah good call. Like Father cannot yell. Um, and I like the part that that part you clipped where he just starts playing. I want to be your dog. Oh, it that works. is what that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how do you pick up on that? Yeah. But that's what I've got about Non-Alignment Pact. So let's move on to track two, the title track, The Modern Dance. Such now, language, Dan. Yes. If, if, <laughs> now, if your French is a bit rusty, the word maradra, well, folks, I don't know how to break this to you. It, it means shit. <laughs> However, there's actually an obscure literary reference here. Maradra is sort of a crude colloquialism for the more standard merda 
adding an extra R to the end of the word. Now, Meridra happens to be the first word of dialogue in the French play Ubu Roy, written by Alfred Jerry. The play centers around the titular Père Ubu, who kills the king of Poland to take the throne and then proceeds to serve out this reign of gluttony, greed, and cruelty. And he's eventually challenged by the former king's surviving son and then flees the country in cowardice. Uh, the play's premiere in Paris in 1896 was also its final performance. Its unrestrained vulgarity sparked such disgust in the audience that the performance ended with a riot, beating <laughs> the riot of spring but to the punch by a few years. People loved rioting about art in those days. <laughs> <laughs> we need to bring that back. Now there's no TV. So in a way, it's kind of like the, the band's theme song. I like how it introduces the band's more twitchy, paranoid side. David Thomas is doing this this weird, nervous quiver with every every line of uh, lyrics here. And the song was included with the original batch of early singles under the name Untitled. And one of the interesting changes between the versions is the instrumental break. On the album version, we get this dark, brooding simmer with these kind of unsettling snippets of TV laugh tracks just kind of fading in and out. It gives it this whole weird, eerie ambiance. So meanwhile, over on the single version, instead of all that, we get a breezy jazz vamp. <laughs> it's like Perubu doing Yacht Rock. Yeah, it kind of is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I like the modern dance a lot. I've always kind of preferred the the untitled version, just slightly. Hmm. It's missing the merdra merdra. Yeah. But uh I like that. I like that breezy jazz vamp. It's <laughs> it's it seems so out of place. It's so uncharacteristically smooth. Yeah. For for Perupu. <laughs> but I like those those yacht rock chords. But specifically what it reminds me of is uh like the the fade out to uh, the Eagles. I can't tell you why. <laughs> It's just a comparison I would not expect to make to a Perubu song. This makes me want to submit this song to the guys on the Yacht Rock podcast <laughs> to see if they consider it to be on the boat, as they say. I'm going to guess it. they won't, but it would be a funny thing to do. It's off on Yacht. <laughs> well, and also on, on the single version, it's got this weird noodly guitar bit that plays over all the yeah. verses as well. I like yeah. that. Um, off on Yacht. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, still thinking about that. 
<laughs> I just came up with that just the second. But I mean, the, the album version has plenty to recommend it. It's got, you know, like I mentioned, it's got the Merdra Merdra. And just just to elaborate further on uh, the meaning, if you were to translate the play into English, the opening line would be something like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> but also it's got it's got that breakdown with the, the TV laugh track, which I love how it's like the all the jokes are just crudely snipped out. Yeah. You'll hear somebody start to say something and then it'll, the tape will just stop and it gets cut off by people laughing. I like the, the the psychological implications of that. And it's got when the band comes back in after that, there's this sort of atonal slide guitar solo. And I always like guitar parts that kind of sound like the guitar player is just kind of stumbling all over the stage. I just like when songs do that. Yeah. Uh, Rich, what do you think of this one? Well, this is going to be very predictable and on brand of me, but the moment Per Ubu really clicked with me was when I realized that they have a spiritual similarity with They Might Be Giants. So so I bring this up now because the Ubu Roy reference that Dan was talking about and also the old like TV laugh tracks and applause that they remind me of like the way that TMBG will also take pieces of like high and low pop culture and incorporate them into the band's like mythos. Like uh, their name is a reference to a really mediocre George C. Scott movie and their lyrics (laughs) are filled with like references to things like Menudo, the Longines Symphonite and the 64 World's Fair. And uh, I'm not just BSing. There is actually a literal connection between the two bands. Uh, Tony Mamoni left Per Ubu in 1993 to play on the They Might Be Giants album, John Henry. Oh. And Per Ubu opened for TMBG in concert around the same time. And on top of that, John Linnell has cited a mid-80s David Thomas solo show as one of his early formative concert experiences. Apparently, David Thomas got really annoyed at a heckler and just stormed off the stage for a little bit. (laughs) but anyway they're pretty different bands stylistically like tmbg go much more overtly for like catchy melodies whereas like per ubu isn't really concerned with that kind of thing but i think that if you're into one band there's an off chance that the other band will appeal to you so uh, as usual something being broadly similar to they might be giants is a good way into my heart all right for done modern dancing uh, let's move on to track three the eminently catchy laughing Laughing is where things start to get a bit more challenging. And I can absolutely understand that a reasonable person might see this as their signal to politely run for the exits. The lion's share of the song consists of David Thomas on a musette, which I guess is a piccolo oboe. Is that right? You know yeah. About him? yeah. Yeah. 
And Alan Ravenstein is on a dueling sax, and the two of them are just sort of atonally squeaking away at each other like wounded animals, while this pensive rhythm section chugs in the background. It sounds a bit like if Captain Beefheart's Hair Bake One was recorded in hell. (laughs) (laughs) But were they playing in a bush? But then, just as you think you're about to lose your mind, the tension finally breaks as the band crashes in, culminating with David Thomas howling out the line, My baby said, if the devil comes, shoot him with a gun. always struck me as being pretty chilling, especially with how little other lyrical context is here. However, I actually came across an an interesting suggestion that somebody posed online that it's a possible reference to the Terrence Malick film The Badlands. There's a scene uh, where Sissy Spacek's narration speaks the line, he said that if the devil came at me, I'd shoot him with a gun. David Thomas does seem like the kind of guy who watched those Terrence Malick movies at the time. He was probably first in line for Days of Heaven. And, and, and putting that in, in perspective, it kind of makes the we could live in the empty spaces bit make a lot of sense, too, just mm. with, with the theme of the Badlands. Like I, I, it's a pretty good catch, I think. I haven't seen it in years, but I'll, I'll buy it. You know, it could be that my familiarity with albums like Trout Mask Replica has indeed made me a bit more tolerant of squeaky, dissonant woodwinds. But I find this track absolutely riveting. It's ugly and unpleasant, but it's just such an engrossing performance. One of the things that I like about albums like this is is that it sort of challenges your concept of of what music is supposed to do and what purpose it can serve. I, I, I get that these aren't the qualities that everybody looks for in music, um, but sometimes it's interesting to have a song just be challenging and make you feel things that you don't usually feel listening to music. And that's what I get with this. Like, it's got a real tension and release to it and not in the typical way you would with like, you know, like a progressive rock song or something. You, re- <laughs> I, you know, really, you know, you, you get like a, a weird catharsis out of this. Uh, yeah, as much as we love Prague on this podcast, it is really fun to make fun of it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I agree with you, Dan. I, I love songs like this that like play around with structure without going completely like free form and off the rails. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing that. You, are, you already mentioned Trap Mask Replica. And mm-hmm. yeah, we, we talked at length about how, all, how much all of us love those crazy songs. But it's still impressive to me when a band like successfully manages to to take that sort of middle ground like this is recognizably a rock song to me but i I don't know if you could call the verses verses or the chorus a chorus (laughs) or you know whether any of that even matters at all it probably doesn't the the song is just its own like 
whacked out creation. It, it took a while for me to notice it, but, uh, but, you know, now that I, now that I have, I really love it. I think that like, you know, the true modern dance really begins with this song. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Cause yeah, we've got two semi conventionally catchy songs at the beginning. And here is where like the real kind of in the weeds, Perubu starts to show up. I love this one. I always forget how long that opening section is. It's like two minutes. Oh, yeah. But when when the chorus question mark finally <laughs> crashes in, it's it's such a release. It's so well done. Like successive listens to this after you hear it the first time are even more satisfying because you keep waiting for that to happen. Yeah. And it's <laughs> the the buildup is, is so well done, especially because you know the oboe and the sax they never sound it never sounds just like wanky noodling to me like it sounds like it's like they're arguing it's like i'm, yeah. I'm listening to two birds fighting or something <laughs> yeah it's emotional there's like an emotion to it yeah also uh, regarding the lyrics i've seen badlands but i didn't catch that or i either didn't catch it or i did catch it and i just there was nobody around who knew perubu I saw, so, I saw it a long time ago and I had not listened to Per Ubu yet at the time. Yeah. So I, I might have caught it and then just like forgotten about it because who was I going to tell about it? But yeah, Dan, I, I love your whole uh, observation about music and, and what its purpose is. Because so many people think that the point of music is to be pretty and lovely and relaxing. And. That's fine if that's what you want music to be, if that's uh, the purpose you need it for. But if somebody's making music that is consciously not that, that doesn't mean they're doing it wrong. <laughs> and I, I think laughing's a great example of that. Also, this song would be like the big arena rock hit single on Trout Mask Replica, just for point <laughs> <Yeah>. of comparison. <laughs> you would listen to it and call and be like, sell out. Yeah. <laughs> also, the, the song also kind of reminds me of the Pixies in, in a weird way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it totally does. <laughs> dynamics yeah 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 the dynamics and and i know the pixies didn't invent the entire concept of songs with quiet parts and loud parts but uh, th this is a case where like per ubu was factually a huge influence on them like this is a noted fact mm -hmm. like uh, well, well frank black hired several musicians who had worked with per ubu for his own band including again tony mamoni dude really got around in the early 90s <laughs> Uh, and and actually, the B side to the Per Ubu single "Kathleen" is literally just half an hour of Frank Black and David Thomas hanging out and chatting. <laughs> Somebody was talking to me today that is it's interviewing me about, and he wrote this article about fat men of rock. You know, as a as a you know, I mean, I don't think you're fat. You know, you're I am, but thank you. You're pudgy. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're pudgy. You know, but um, <clears throat> as some sort, you know, he's doing this some sort of tribute. You know, as the fat men of rock or they didn't something. Give you any names well he, he mentioned people you and i know very well <laughs> so they are each very very aware of the other's existence is what i'm saying yeah that makes a lot of sense like frank black is a self-professed surrealist and yeah 
you know, Peruber or total Dadaists. Yeah. So, my my yeah. favorite bit of the conversation that I've listened to so far is like, a, well, recently Frank Black had done his cover of Hang On To Your Ego by the Beach Boys. And David Thomas oh. was saying that like he admires the cover, but in his mind, like Good Vibrations is, is the perfect song. And the Lost Beach Boys album Smile is like a case where like th- the music only exists in some like perfect non-corporeal state and trying to take like any mm. of Brian Wilson's music from the era and recreating it is like a fool's game basically so again this is the kind of thing that you know you're getting into when you listen to david thomas talk about anything (laughs) it's very interesting but he can go on and on yeah i like that though he's a real interview subject where the the interviewer will ask one question and david thomas just talk for like seven solid minutes uninterrupted (laughs) and for the record for our listeners i know hang on to your ego is not on smile okay it's from the same era (laughs) hold your emails (laughs) yeah All right, well, before we start going on and on, let's move on to track four. This is Street Waves. a funny anecdote for this one where David Thomas describes how his girlfriend at the time had once mistakenly thought that a song had been written about her and he kind of let her down by telling her it was actually written about somebody else Um, but to make up for it he presented her street waves and told her I was passing a stack of used tires on West 74th and I thought of you (laughs) (laughs) Aww, so romantic This is another one that was recycled from the original run of singles and coming out of laughing. It's it's kind of nice having something a little more straight ahead to pull us back to earth a bit. For me, this one really evokes the feeling of driving through like a sketchy part of town. In the 1970s, Cleveland was on the decline a bit. Uh, Factories were shutting down. The population was shrinking and crime rates were rising. In fact, around this time, the city became known as Bomb City, USA, due to the number of bombings by the mob. Wow. Wow. This was also yeah. around the time when the, the Cuyahoga River caught on fire because there was so much yeah. like oil and gas in it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this entire record has a general feeling of this decaying urban landscape. Yeah, everything on the record sounds like it's covered in rust and soot. Yeah. You know, and the uh, in particular, the ambient instrumental breakdown of this song actually sounds like the back cover of this record, which is this picture of this bleak, desolate steel factory. Wow. Adding machines. Industrial waste. Yeah, and I love that this, like, 
desolate ambient noise is like it's running throughout the entire track. There's just like this one part right here where they let it really like break free. Right. I don't even think I noticed that. It's there. That's interesting. It just sounds like air you don't want to breathe in. Yeah. Oh, I love Street Waves. This is another this is another one of my favorite punk songs on the same album. <laughs> the that guitar just sounds so mean. Like it's it's not the the heaviest, most distorted guitar tone, but it just it sounds like it's gonna cut you. <laughs> I just I love when when Perubu get more aggressive like this. Um uh, and I understand why, you know, conceptually they moved away from this kind of thing, but it's it's my favorite thing that they do. And I always thought until like yesterday that this song had a totally wordless chorus. Uh, apparently he's actually singing then I'm gone, gone, gone by her heart. And yeah. I always misheard it as na 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 wa wa Fair enough. That's about what I heard too. <laughs> and that that ambient breakdown is just great. It's so simple, but it's so effectively done. And it's it's a trick that's deceptively difficult to pull off right. And they really do it well when they crash back in. But Rich, what do you think? Uh, good song. You, you've said you guys have said everything I was going to say about the music itself. So I'm going to talk about Cleveland for a second. I, I've actually only been there once within the city limits, and it was to see Weird Al in concert because I am devoted to being a complete caricature of myself. <laughs> but uh, but as for Per Ubu, I've, I've never actually experienced like Per Ubu's Cleveland, like all of like you know the the Rust Belt decay and Lost American Dreams. But like in getting ready for this episode, I discovered that there's plenty of writing about it like i i swear we've, we've covered more than a hundred artists for this show and the wankiest criticism that i've read has been about per ubu by a very very wide margin it is ridiculous and <laughs> and i think that's because like david thomas invites this kind of criticism with the way he he talks about anything but it, you know j just warning everybody if you plan to read up on per ubu j like be warned that a lot of it is like about the band as like poet prophets of middle America and things like that. And I don't want to, and I intellectualize or anything, but it can, it, it can honestly get to be a bit much. Yeah. But yeah, street waves, good song. <laughs> All right. Let's move on then to the, the final track on side one of the original LP Chinese radiation. radiation gives us our first moment of actual peace on the record with a simple pleasant guitar pattern accompanied by a bass with a nice chorus effect to it 
But even here, the Serenity is kind of overcast with these streams of oozing synthesizer. It feels a bit like you're doing your best to enjoy a post-apocalyptic sunset with garbage kind of floating in the atmosphere. (laughs) Uh, the, The song takes this unexpected turn into a rave up that then winds back down to this gentle, bittersweet piano. It all makes for a strange, disorienting composition that I think actually manages to be one of the prettiest pieces Pierre ever recorded, believe it or not. Yeah. Yeah. As for the title of the song, I'm just going to read the notes from the Ubu Project's website verbatim here. In the early 70s, it was said that Cleveland had the highest population of Maoists outside of China. An urban myth, probably, but that was the talk. Certainly, the Maoist warnings about personality cult were circulating. When China tested its A-bombs, the fallout traveled in the high atmosphere to finally descend on Cleveland. Thus, the inspiration for the song Chinese Radiation in the album's cover art. (laughs) I I love that origin for the title because it reminds me kind of of my own time living in the Midwest. Like, I mean, I I didn't have any experiences with radiation, but like, I don't know, it, it did feel like when I was living there, like coastal America was moving at light speed while everything in my immediate vicinity was moving incredibly slowly, like a sense of time dilation. So I don't know. I, I feel that vibe that like your world is being impacted by like big geopolitical forces that are like utterly beyond your reach. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that's my overthinking of this track. But, you know, hell, Perubu <laughs> is like a band made for overthinking. <laughs> right. I just called that flyover country. (laughs) (laughs) And and let me tell you, people love it. I wouldn't live there if you paid me to. (laughs) Yeah, but the rave up section is funny to me because I don't know. You would expect like a rock song like street street waves to have like a loud section like that with crowd noise. And you would expect like Chinese radiation to have like the ambient chill out midsection. And it feels like they swapped the two. Huh? That's interesting. (laughs) I, I never thought of that. Well, I don't think that's what actually happened, but, it, you know, it's a right. sign of like that just the interesting like songwriting and arrangement and production decisions that make this album what it is. They're never quite doing what you expect them to. Yeah. Well, and the rave up sounds like it's barely holding together. <laughs> right. <laughs> the image I get during that section is like they're, they're it's Perupu playing at Woodstock 99. There's like there's like a guy surfing on a broken piece of fence. (laughs) David Thomas would not have had a good time at Woodstock 99, though I guess no one did. No, (laughs) I don't think anyone enjoyed that. Um, My thoughts about Chinese radiation are that this is this is Bohemian Rhapsody for weird, nervous people who never leave the house. Oh, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I like that. It's actually for for being like a multi-part rock epic. Uh, it's over in three and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. It's very concise. It's their pocket symphony to God. 
<laughs> They're pocket symphony to uh, something. But I do. I mean, I especially like that that piano outro. I think they're yeah. just really nicely chosen chords. And I, I love the effect of these just this this serene piano part with the, the drums just going all smash them, crash them <laughs> over the top of it. I love the the contrast there. What's interesting is there's not a lot of piano on the album, but when it when it comes through, it's it is like this clean element that really contrasts yeah. all of the garbage that is kind of piled on yeah. top of the rest of the soundstage. Yeah, it's like it's like the sun coming out for just a, a moment. Yeah, yeah, that's the bit on the album that most reminds me of the fall, honestly. Hmm, hmm. that like, makes sense. Like something like I come and stand at your door, or or something like that. Oh. Well, let's flip the record over. If you're enough of a hipster to have the original vinyl, let's move on to track six. Life stinks. Perhaps the finest Mel Brooks movie. (laughs) Either that or Dracula dead and loving it. Stinks is a Rocket from the Tomb song written by Peter Lochner, who seems to have been the primary inspiration for Per Ubu's darker side in the early days. The fact that it was Thomas and Lochner who paired off together to form Per Ubu is actually kind of surprising because they were often at odds with each other creatively in Rocket from the Tombs. In fact, Thomas reached a point where he had become increasingly uncomfortable singing some of Lochner's darker material. Perhaps the bigness signifier of this is that one of Rocket's most memorable songs, Ain't It Fun, which was written by Peter Lochner, actually wound up being played by the Dead Boys rather than Per Ubu. As for the song on the album that is solely credited to Lochner, Life Stinks clocks in under two minutes, and it really stands out as the most direct track here. 
Despite its title, it actually has some of the most amusingly blunt and nonsensical lyrics on the record. Just nine lines, all rhyming with the word stinks. <laughs> David Thomas sounds absolutely unhinged here, eventually breaking into full cornholio mode between the verses over an assault of squealing horns and drunken slide guitar. This, to me, is about as punk rock as Per Ubu gets. And it's still pretty weird. <laughs> Rich, what do you make of this one? Well, like Dan said earlier, David Thomas gets offended when people call Per Ubu a punk band. And I, I, I don't think he would necessarily punch you for saying that. He would more like roll his eyes and go, Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> that's more his style. But, you know, as we said earlier, he like David Thomas considers Ubu to be like the continuation of like a separate and lost evolutionary path of mainstream rock music and not like a conscious break from the past, which is what punk rock was. And is <laughs> sorry, punk fans, but, you know, <laughs> say what you will. David Thomas is very consistent with his ideology, but, you know, whatever you call the band. I, I don't know. I like that this song seems to like jump right over punk and post punk right into like, I don't know, like <laughs> 80s hardcore punk or something it's like, like that. No wave. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's aggressive. It's got very few lyrics. It's in and out in under two minutes. I, I don't know. I could see like minor threat performing this uh, or, you, <laughs> you know, since I don't know that entire scene very well. Insert more appropriate band of your choice here. Yeah, maybe fear. Well, part of his hang up with punk, I think, is I know he specifically had a real resentment for the New York scene. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. You hear a lot of interviews where he just really rolls his eyes at, you know, any mention of bands from New York. He, I think he said the one New York band he ever liked was television. Yeah, I, I heard <laughs> that too. And while we're on the subject, R.I.P. Tom Verlaine. Yeah, Indeed. pretty much so. Yeah. Yeah, this is ideally as intellectual as I like punk rock to be. Hmm. This and now I want to sniff some glue. I like food by the descendants. I like food, food ain't good. I like food, food ain't good. Goddamn job by the replacements. I need a goddamn job. I need a goddamn job. You stupid jerk by the angry Samoans. You stupid jerk. And if you absolutely must get political, Reaganomics by DRI. I don't need anything more sophisticated from a punk song than life stinks and I need a drink and I can't think and I like the kinks. All universal truths. <laughs> <laughs> but I love how, I mean, for a song called Life Stinks, that's just like relentlessly negative. It's just so goofy. Yeah, <laughs> there's that ridiculous. I mean, is that the musette again? Yeah, in the it's break, got that nasally tone to it. It sounds like a, a pissed off party noisemaker. <laughs> it's just I mean, they're having fun with it. I mean, later on, we're going to we're going to hear what David Thomas really thinks about uh, punk style nihilism. And it's it's clear that the song is just more of a fun goof than anything. Yeah, I don't have a lot of expertise on the full Per Ubu catalog, but I, I haven't really encountered any other songs by them that are this funny. They don't really go for humor very much. You know, it's funny as I feel like they get more playful later on, but less overtly funny. Yeah. Like there's kind of a darkness to this early stuff, whereas the albums after this, it's weird. They get more challenging, but they're not quite as gritty, which is interesting like they're not they're not off-putting in like a dark way they're more just off-putting in a what is this yeah kind of way well i guess it's time to move on 
to the real world. Track seven. Strange where we you would have started this game. I wish the real world would just stop hassling me. Oops. David sounds great here. He does, yeah. He's hitting so many notes. Ladies and gentlemen, the opposite of Perubu. So that was Real World by Matchbox 20, their second appearance on this podcast in just three months. Make of that what you will. (laughs) Way to go. Here's the Perubu song. I always think this is going to become Purple Haze. Take a minute to spotlight Alan Ravenstein, uh, the the guy playing all of the the wild scent stuff here. Similar to Brian Eno's early days, Ravenstein didn't approach the synthesizer as a melodic instrument. In fact, rather than even using a keyboard, he would use a joystick and just kind of adjust the knobs to to coax these otherworldly sounds and textures out of the machine. And we kind of mentioned this earlier, but it gave him an interesting role in the band, sort of providing these this odd ornamentation to songs that I don't know that I appreciated it when I first listened to this record. It's it's something I've kind of realized it kind of defines the sound of Perubu. It's this just odd layer of just kind of like modern just sludge, a lot of this <laughs> stuff that... Uh, which sounds like a, a you know not the nicest thing in the world, but it, it's what makes it what it is. Um, on this on this song in particular, he's really I think getting a showcase here, where it sounds like he's just in the gutter with just all of these <laughs> nasty ring modulated you know blips and bloops and swells. And this is actually the song that reminds me the most of fellow Ohio band Devo with some of the mm. really early stuff with this kind of clunky mechanical chug and these oozy synth blasts. Space goes on as cold as ice. Kiss you once and kiss you twice. Shiver, shake it, then the blue. Yes, you got the space go blue.
right, Rich, what do you think of this one? Well, with, with regard to Alan Ravenstein, I think of him like a great, like, you know, to use the language of cinema, he's like a person who does like the Foley. He fills out mm-hmm. the production with all of like the, the sound effects and atmosphere that you don't notice except when it's not there. Like, I, I don't know if you've ever heard uh, any like early cuts of movies before the Foley is added, but it sounds like incredibly just empty like yeah. uh like the clips from the batman movie on the prince soundtrack are a good <laughs> example of that uh, but aside from alan ravenstein i wanted to talk a little bit about like david thomas as a lyricist because, because like my first instinct listening to this song was to compare it to talking heads especially something from like fear of music which we covered a few years mm-hmm. ago uh, you know that kind of sparse staccato nervous energy though i though i agree that devo is probably a better comparison uh, but like you know david byrne as a lyricist his lyrics his lyrics tend to center around a theme whereas like real world just feels like a bunch of stuff like observations from a night on the town you know like city streets shine so brightly cindy makes a bad joke and then technoramic heartache which uh, every time i look at the lyrics that has a trademark symbol for some reason (laughs) and thomas says that he approaches singing as quote a mirror of consciousness and that nobody on the face of the planet has ever thought my baby's left me i feel so bad it's impossible to think that simply it's more like oh my baby's left me and oh geez this floor is awfully dirty who's gonna do the dishes the grocery store is closing in 10 (laughs) minutes Uh, And that and that's something I find very endearing about him. Like there's no ego to it. He sees himself as a singer, but not like the poet laureate of the band for all of, you know, the the wanky words that have been spilled over over Per Ubu. Uh, His words are like purely a conduit for what's going through his head at that moment, which I like a lot. This does. uh, Speaking of David Byrne, this does kind of have a similar thing where it's like an alien describing a regular (laughs) night on the town. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like something David Byrne would do. Yeah. It's, it's like normal observations just like cut up and pasted back together in incomprehensible ways. It really does. Like there are, there are lyricists whose style feels like a stream of consciousness. David Thomas really does feel just like a stream of consciousness where like you're not necessarily getting the context that gives what he's saying meaning you're, you're just getting the thoughts themselves without any help, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, that's why I'm saying it's it, it seems like similar to David Byrne, but like with David Byrne, it always, it, you know, seems to like cycle back to like, this is weird and alienating and I'm scared of it. Whereas like with David, David <laughs> Thomas doesn't even like let you in that much. You're just getting these like, <laughs> I don't know, unfiltered thoughts from his brain, basically. Yeah. But yeah, I, I also really like the the synths on this one. Lots of lots of ring modulation, which you know, I th- I think I've I've tried to explain ring modulation before and failed. There's a lot of math involved. But basically it's if you want to make a, a pretty musical sound with a ring modulator, you've got your work cut out for you. <laughs> it's, it's it's not made for that. Um it's just made for making weird ugly space noises and i actually looked up the the synthesizer that alan ravenstein was using for this album and just in perubu in general it was a it was an eml synthesizer it was made to compete with with moog and arp and these big guys and i think it was also intended to to be used as like an educational tool to like teach kids the the basics of synthesis like the raspberry pie of synthesizers <laughs> yeah. or like a speaking math. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think I don't think anyone liked it. Very few mm-hmm. people bought one. It looks like the the mother computer from Alien, just this big <laughs> forbidding machine. 
And without a keyboard, you're just like, I actually saw an interview with Alan Ravenstein talking about how like there was no, there were no presets. There was no, any sound you wanted to make with it was, there was a connection that you had to make. So you had to really figure out what patches were going to make what sounds. And he was talking about how in playing live with Perubu, because he would do all this live, he would actually have, he would have like a music stand in front of him and it, it wouldn't be sheet music. It would be like diagrams of all the patches to make all the different sounds. That's really impressive, especially when you, that, I, I can't remember if we talked about this, but like, you know, just early in our New Order episode, but just like the early yeah. times when they tried to tour with their sequencers and stuff, like they could never get it right. So hearing about like Alan yeah. Ravenstein, like managing to do that with Per Ubu is really impressive to me. Well, especially considering they're probably playing some fairly scuzzy clubs. So it's not like now yeah. you got like a little like LED light above your rig where you can neatly right. you know, <laughs> set your, 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 your settings. I mean, I mean, he's like you know, like off in the corner of this dark stage having to set everything up. Right. Yeah. And yeah, since back then were just these unruly beasts. So yeah, much respect. And it's just a such a wild role to have in a band. You, know, you think of like uh like Martin Swope in Mission of Burma. Who was, <laughs> yeah. I was thinking that too. He, he he's the he's the tape loop guy, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean it's just very specific role to have but you know an, a, a, an important one i mean yeah it's it's a huge part of the sound what a specific skill to have yeah that's that's the role i want to have in a band it's like <laughs> i want to be the guy in a rock band whose job is just to make the weird noises yeah it's it's great i mean like i i, I really come to appreciate that kind of member in a band who's like your yeah your role is to make the album sound cool yeah <laughs> yeah and just and doing all that stuff on the fly in concerts crazy yeah. So if we're done with real world, let's move on to track eight that I'm sure Rich does not have a prank clip for. Over my head. Uh, too obvious. <laughs> I know. But it sure feels nice. <laughs> <laughs> Though if you could somehow make a mashup of this and the Fleetwood Mac song, that would be amazing, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cute the way she talks me <laughs> you want burritos here the album takes an unexpected turn toward a love song <laughs> you know, in, in a way this almost feels to me like an ubud up steamy chris isaac ballad oh <laughs> you know it has this 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 sort of slow burning torch song feel to it but there's something just kind of off about it just something slightly unsettling to it I actually don't have a whole lot on this one, um, but I, I I like it as this weird kind of change of pace. Uh, you know, they do a lot of styles here that more than you would think for a record this kind of unwieldy and experimental. But they, you know, give you a few of these interesting little curveballs like this. It's a, it's a steamy love song, except you've both grown like a partial third arm from the nuclear disaster. 
<laughs> Ooh, conceptual continuity. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of a lot of radioactive waste on this album. Yeah. Uh this is one I don't have a ton to say about, but it reminds me a little bit of uh the Stooges song I'm sick of you. Except I'm Sick of You eventually kicks in, and this <laughs> this one does not. It's also got um, those eerie sort of Gregorian chant. I know Gregorian yeah. chant is monophonic, but I, I can't think of a more accurate term at the moment. But the, those backing vocals are super eerie, and I like them a lot. But that's mostly what I've got. Rich, you got any more? Yeah, we are three for three on not having much on this one. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll just say what I say every time a song has really great dynamic range, which is, boy, this song sure has great dynamic range. <laughs> like, this is a really smartly produced album in general. I mean, it, like, mm. uh, the it, it was especially noticeable when I was making the clip of that Matchbox 20 song earlier, which is from the late 90s, and that means it's brick-walled to hell. Yeah, it's just a big block of sound yeah so pair ubu sounds way better than matchbox 20 qed <laughs> which is a pretty good compliment because this album was sort of kind of cobbled together by yeah. a lot of just you know quick i think studio uh sessions here and there so it, again for a lot of records from this scene in this era it, it sounds really good i think that record production practices were just you know, better, you know, back in the day when music was way better in general, right, guys? When music was real, not like Justin Bieber and what you kids listen to. Uh, <laughs> but I'm always surprised by the production values of these old punk or punk adjacent albums. Like, I, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I said something similar when we covered X-Ray Specs. Like, oh, that's yeah. That's a good sounding great. album. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think we're all kind of at a loss. For, for trying to describe this one. I don't know. I think we said plenty about that song. That, that was a, that was more of a discussion than I expected for that one. Yeah, I had like yeah. no notes for that one. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we did find some things to say. We're so, just in a hurry for a sentimental journey. Yeah, we are. Yeah, let's let's hurry along to uh, the easiest song to talk about on the album. Everybody's favorite sentimental journey. No, not that kind. Sorry, here's the right one. See, unlike Fleetwood Mac, they leave the breaking glass in. <laughs>
know what you're asking. Was this a single? No. Um, so <laughs> in our continuing mission to cover every polarizing sound collage committed to tape, we now come to Sentimental Journey. Believe it or not, this is a song that was part of their live set, which is wild considering how it feels like just such a studio creation. It's almost as if you told me that the Beatles were bashing out Revolution 9 in the Hamburg clubs back in the day. As a concert performance, I can imagine it must have been pretty intense seeing David Thomas stalking the stage, acting his way through this. But in the studio, I think it really gets an extra kick of creepiness with just the smashing bottles and general, I don't know, like I feel like they, they probably had more control over what was going into the sound stage. And it, it feels a bit like you're walking alone at night down a five mile stretch of scary back alleys. Yeah. It's just, you know, it, it took me forever to come around to giving this track the time of day. I mean, six minutes of this. No, thanks. <laughs> but, you know, and unlike laughing, there's no melodic payoff. There are no safety rails here at all. It is just six solid minutes of sustained tension and creepiness. But, you know, over the years, again, I think we've, you know, we talk a lot about these difficult sound collages and how I think a lot of us have kind of developed an understanding um, with what these are meant to do. And that's where I am with this. Uh, you know, this isn't the kind of thing I would want to listen to even every time I put the album on a lot of times I don't feel like hearing all of this, but I appreciate what they're doing here because um, it is a creepy, scary listen. And, you know, if you find this difficult, uh, you know, this track, at least I can see what their aim is. You go an album or two ahead of this, they will do these experimental tracks. They're just completely shapeless. Like yeah. it is just vibing for four <laughs> minutes with few changes. Yeah, like a, a small dark cloud on new picnic time. Yeah. Yeah. There's a fly in the ointment. There's a speck of a fly. There's a fly in the ointment. Whereas this one takes you on a ride, and it is maybe not a pleasant ride, but it is a ride. Yeah. I've I've always really liked this one. I mean, if it comes oh, really? on shuffle while I'm driving, yeah, I'm gonna <laughs> skip it. But it's Turn it so up. it's so effective. And yeah. I, you know, we've we've talked about this when you're know, talking about stuff like Aum by Can and and things like that. What what makes it work is really the intent, mm. and you know they're they're going into it knowing what they want it to do and going all out in achieving it. I mean, that's that's some scary glass breaking. Yeah. That's I mean, that's really well recorded. And it's a jump scare. It is. And matter of fact, uh a newer track that uh kind of reminds me of this one is uh by uh, Lingua Nyota. Oh god. Uh from from her uh brilliant but nearly unlistenably painful album Caligula. There's a track called <laughs> Sorrow, Sorrow, Sorrow with near the beginning, this light bulb just shatters and it gets you every time. God alone. 
Sorrow, sorrow, sorrow on an album called Caligula. Sounds like a barrel of laughs. Yeah, that album is quite a listen. It's yeah, I have I have her two most recent albums. I never listened to them, but I also can't not own them. <laughs> but also what I've what I've seen this compared to is Slint. Yeah, I've seen. Yeah. And you can really hear that in that guitar part. Like there is some music going on here and it's it does sound like the really tense part of a slint song. mentioned that a, a lot of later uh, Perubu sound collage type stuff, you know, small dark clouds, the book is on the table, just things mm-hmm. that are just like, we're going to be experimental for four or five minutes. Yeah. This one really, it, there is, there always has been a story in my mind. Like I always imagine this guy whose wife has just left him and is sinking into despair alone. And it's just like walking around the house, smashing things. That's that's his sentimental journey is breaking <laughs> anything that has any sort of happy emotional memory for him. And it's named after it's named after a Doris Day song. Yeah, I was going to say like the perfect little bow on it. <laughs> this is a, this is about as far from Doris Day as a song could possibly get. Yeah. Gonna take a sentimental journey. Gonna say. My heart at ease. Gonna make a sentimental journey to renew old memories. Yeah, part of why it took me so long to get into the modern dance is because, like, most of what I could remember about the album was this song. And it, it feels like, and it feels like so so performance art. And Dan, you, you mentioned like you know, uh, imagining David Thomas like rambling around the stage, like acting this song out. And uh, well, there sadly isn't any surviving live video footage of early Per Ubu, at least at least from this era that I could find. But if you watch more recent performances, he actually doesn't do that much. He mostly just like stands there with his eyes closed and that's really all that it takes it's very he has a very commanding stage presence even when he's barely Mm -hmm. doing anything theoretically and i I guess on a musical level i'd probably rank this on like the lower end of the sound collages we've covered it's definitely better than the pearl jam one oh yeah yeah but as an experience i would never leave it off the album i can't imagine the modern dance without sentimental journey on it yeah it's it's the it's the difficult climax you need it all right we've gotten through sentimental journey Everybody okay? Yes. <laughs> All right. We can move on to the 10th and final track, Humor Me. It was the first thing that I saw. I never see that kind of classical girl. I understand that it was the first thing that I saw. That was fate. 
Humor Me was written as a reaction to the death of the band's original guitarist, Peter Lochner. And, well, I can probably think of some warmer eulogies for fallen bandmates. <laughs> Despite yeah. being a founding member, Peter Lochner's tenure in Peruvi was fairly short-lived. Not long after the band's formation, his descent into drugs and alcohol made him increasingly erratic and paranoid. Most alarming, he had started carrying a thirty-eight pistol and was known to show it to people. He had become difficult enough to work with to where his departure from the band was basically an inevitability. And when he died the following year, David Thomas wasn't surprised. He was angry. Humor Me reflects his frustration with kind of the romanticization of this sort of self-destructive rock and roll lifestyle that I think he felt was becoming kind of like the mode for the scene at the time. And he later referred to this as the Manhattan death trip. In a number of ways, this feels like the perfect way to end the record. The modern dance served as a sort of clearing house of the band's early repertoire. With the next album, they started fresh with a completely new batch of material and a new vision. I'm just going to quote a line from a writer, John Savage, who said, Lochner's death marked a change in direction from the destructive illusions essential to certain popular rock and art aesthetics to a disciplined, pragmatic optimism. And just from a musical standpoint, Humor Me provides a much-needed release of tension to go out on. Coming out of the nightmare of sentimental journey, this sort of snappy, relatively straightforward reggae here feels like a giant breath of fresh air. On top of that, Tom Herman closes it out with an extended guitar solo that feels like a huge release driving it all to a cathartic conclusion. Yeah, I like this one a lot. It's a puzzling closer when you first hear it, because, I mean, nothing in the lyrics relates directly to the death of Peter Lochner or or any of the things that it was really written about. Although once you find that out, it makes more sense. Like uh, suffer for that's the way of the West. Mm -hmm. It's like he's he's poking a hole in the whole idea of uh, the suffering artist and just what a load of garbage that is. What a big world to be drowned in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that guitar solo, however confused you might be by the lyrics, that guitar solo tells you everything you need to know. It's mm-hmm. it's the most outwardly emotional moment on the whole album where they're yeah. they're not really working in an emotional mode for for most of the album. They're they're going for something different, but 
this the the solo in this song it shows you that oh these these are human beings with feelings and there is there's a live version of this song that was released as a a b-side and it's on a it's on the terminal tower compilation where you can really hear the anger in this song like on the album it has kind of a, a simmering resentment live it's just pissed off What do you think? Well, I know a little to nothing about Peter Lochner as a human being and his inner life, uh, other than what Dan has said. And, you know, obviously every death is a tragedy, but it feels like very per ubu to react to his death by recording like their own smart ass version of Candle in the Wind. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's 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 basically all I have. I don't think I would notice it if I, if I didn't know, like the uh, the backstory behind this song. But he de- David Thomas definitely sounds like you know, angry and sarcastic in his own distinctive way on this one. Well, that brings us to the end of the modern dance. Dan, what are your final thoughts? I mean, basically just to kind of reiterate what we said throughout the episode is that I just, you know, I like albums like this that are challenging, but they're also just kind of fun to listen to. I mean, you know, like I said, you know, there's your, your sentimental journeys and, you know, a bit of your laughing here, but most of this album I find just a fun listen, but it's also, you know, it's got enough like kind of twists and turns in it that, you know, kind of get, get your brain a little more engaged than your standard like Ramones album or something. But, uh, you know, again, this is a record that yeah I listened to quite a bit, you know, just as a, when, when I want to just kind of get some energy, energy going, you know, uh, more than I can say for a lot of like your your Captain Beefheart stuff. As much as I much as I love Captain Beefheart, it can be more of a special occasion listen. <laughs> yeah, but, I, will, uh, I will say I have not listened to Trout Mask Replica since we did our episode on it. <laughs> like what three years ago? You're not getting your daily listen in. <laughs> it's good for you, man. That's a lot of opportunity cost right there. <laughs> as for me, it's an art rock album. It's a punk rock album. It's mm-hmm. an art rock album and a punk rock album. And as as much as David Thomas would probably scoff at me for for calling it a punk rock album, at the same time, it's kind of more punk than anything out there. Because Perubu truly just did not care what anybody thought. They were going to do what they wanted to do, whether you were along for the ride or not. I mean, to me, this is, as Dan said, it's like the perfect mixture of weird and challenging and fun and catchy. And... If this is too out there for you, ooh, this is this is as catchy and accessible as Perubu get. So turn back now. <laughs> but yeah, it's I've loved this album for more than a couple decades now. It's always been in regular rotation. I don't think I'll ever get sick of it. Rich, how about you? 
Well, as a sort of segue into the part where we recommend other albums by the band, uh, I'll say that I was scared off from Per Ubu for a long time because I, I got the sense that after their early singles and the modern dance, that their, their music was like strictly for their hardcore fans. In fact, I, I mentioned the review page by Mark Prindle earlier. And, and if you read it, it's still up. Like you get the sense that after this album, their discography is just like never ending crap stretching into the horizon. <laughs> and it, but like the reality is that they're really just one of the classic you do you kind of bands like David Thomas does not compromise his his songwriting vision for a single second in their entire catalog but if you were intrigued by the weirder like more bristly parts of the clips we played like sentimental journey and laughing and whatnot they might be the band for you yeah don't don't be scared away by our description of their their later stuff because it is If nothing else, it is interesting. Yeah, and I, I don't I don't think we're going to recommend any of these albums, but they do have a few that can be described as like relatively straightforward pop in the late 80s, early 90s. Oh, yeah. One day I say, woke up to find a heap of running for the bus. I cry. Hold that bus, call Yeah, now that we're now that we're talking about that, Dan, somebody likes the modern dance. What should they listen to next? I would say the the next stop I would recommend would be the Terminal Tower compilation. I think it was released in 1985, and it basically compiles all of the early singles and a few other kind of odds and ends from that time period. And uh, it really kind of it kind of captures the same spirit as this album, where it's in that sort of like where the rocket from the tomb sound is merging into Per Ubu, where you, you still have that kind of proto-punk art conversion point. That, to me, I think is probably the the closest you'll get to, to the modern dance. the album after the modern dance which came out in the same year 78 is dub housing that's a strong one too it's it's a little it's it's not radically different but you can kind of tell where they're starting to 
turn off the the the, the punk rock express a little bit and they're getting a little more uh, esoteric uh you know it's got a few more of those kind of like we mentioned the l- possibly aimless <laughs> kind of experimental <laughs> dirges but it's still for the most part a pretty strong record um now after that uh you know they the records get a little looser more abstract and the band actually broke up for a period in the early 80s and uh, like Rich mentioned, they, they reunited in the late 80s and kind of did some more radio-ready type uh, records. And I think they found out that that wasn't quite paying off. So they, <laughs> they kind of started to shift back into to Ubu mode a little, as, as you more, might recognize them a little more, but with a more kind of modern 90s sound. And I'll actually will recommend uh, the album uh, Raygun Suitcase, which is something from 95, that's kind of the point where they kind of get back on track and uh, kind of get more into the familiar mode they've sort of ridden on since then. Wake up then, and it don't be so. Dub housing isn't a dub album or a house album. I want my money back. <laughs> One interesting thing about that album. I mean, the post-modern dance Perubu is still in the process of growing on me. Well, one interesting thing about uh, dub housing, if you listen to it, if you've heard uh, the Nine Inch Nails album with teeth, a with a teetha, there's a song on there where. Trent Reznor just out of nowhere starts yelling, I've got my arms that flip, flop, flip, flop, flip. <laughs> and when that album came out, everybody heard that and thought, what is, what is he talking about? What? what? That's not angsty. Well, it's a reference to the very first track on dub housing called Navi. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to recommend is a, a later one from 2002. It's called St. Arkansas. And I would describe it as, as like a, a late period fall album. If the fall were from middle of nowhere, America, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a concept album about a traveling salesman and his life just driving back and forth across the country. And it all culminates in a, a nine minute track called dark, which goes absolutely nowhere and does it exceedingly well. It's so hypnotic. It is. 
Well, first off, in regard to the fall comparison, one thing I wanted to say is that, like, for a long time, I kind of assumed that Per Ubu, just based on their sound and the fact that they have a lot of band members, that they were exactly like the fall in every way. But the <laughs> truth is that, like, David Thomas is not like Marky e. Smith. Like, he, he's kind of cantankerous uh, and, and cranky, but, like, he's not mean and violent and he doesn't, I don't know, yeah. uh, they're, they're, not, they're not really the same at all. But as for recommendations, I'm going to recommend the... 1982 album Song of the Bailing Man, which is the final album from the original Per Ubu era, or historical Ubu, as David Thomas calls it. <laughs> and at this point, the band had hired guitarist Mayo Thompson from the band The Red Crayola. And I've never heard them. Have either of you? I'm not actually familiar with them. I've heard their first album. It's got some cool songs in between all the freakouts. <laughs> so it's basically like a, like a mid-period Perubu album. <laughs> <Kinda>. <laughs> well, at any rate, the two albums that Mayo Thompson is on are probably like the most like out there and floating in space the band ever got. And they're, they're fun to listen to just to see how far you can stretch the Perubu sound before it breaks. And I'm going to clip a song called Petrified, which is about the closest thing on the album to a conventional catchy rock song, which is to say it's not at all. Not so many thousand years before These old rocks were the bones of a haplocanthus It was as tall as a house Not about as gentle as a house Their bones are petrified and later they are classified A skeleton million to keep an imagination Animates the minds I just need to see the fluid Grace and subtlety Your animals fit it perfectly the bones of a flying animal now called a pterosaur have been found a hundred miles from the presumed seashore. Song of the Bailing Man also contains a song with the line, Whom would question the worth of a dog? <laughs> and that alone gets it a thumbs up from me. And the final song is called Horns Are a Dilemma, which, sure, <laughs> <laughs> seems logical enough. All right. Next episode. Uh, we thought you could all use a break from all the weirdness after Aphex Twin and Perubu. So we're going to spend the entire month of April creeping around in Laurel Canyon, <laughs> beginning with an album to make you feel unfettered and alive. Amanda's going to be taking us through Court and Spark by Joni Mitchell. You'll laugh, you'll cry, 
It's the same release. <laughs> Joni Mitchell joins the Discord and Rhyme Two Timers Club. Yes. Roll credits. Roll credits. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy The Modern Dance and other albums by Perubu at your local record store or directly from the band at ubuprojects.com, and that's projects with an X. You can also buy or stream it at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. Visit our website, discordpod.com, for show notes and a Spotify playlist featuring this album and every song we clipped in this episode. That'll be a fun one. (laughs) You can follow Discord and Rhyme at Discord Pod on Twitter for news and updates. Editing is by Rich Bunnell. And special thanks to Nobody But Me for production, our theme song, and original music. See you next album, and keep as cool as you can. Sit, Ubu, sit. Good dog.